What's better than Anchor's podcast creation tools? Nothing. Mankind has always searched for evidence of God's perfection, and we found it. Anchor is the easiest way to make a podcast. Anchor gives you everything you need in one place for free, which you can use straight from your phone or computer. The creation tools allow you to record and edit your podcast so it sounds great. They'll distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard everywhere. Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and the lesser of the podcast platforms like Stitcher. You can easily make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. I've made $5, and I've been doing this for three months. So, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. Guys, I've done this intro about five times now and deleted every single one of them. I have nothing to say. Uh, there's nothing going on. I watched the Deadwood movie on HBO last night with my sister and brother-in-law, and uh, it was not so great. It wasn't the worst thing. It wasn't super disappointing like Game of Thrones last season. It was just uh, sort of there. It didn't try to achieve a lot, and it did not achieve a lot. Uh, I was also confused by my own disappointment because I didn't really expect much, but still wasn't happy. Not outraged, just not happy. So who knows what that is. Maybe I should stop counting on television to satisfy me in my life. I have been reading The Golden Compass. Uh, I am five chapters in uh, for tomorrow when my friend and I decide to do a, a little side segment for this podcast. And uh, eh, it's all right. It's not the worst thing I read, but it's okay. I uh, Today I went to a grocery store and I bought groceries. My kid came because she had to pick up something for tomorrow and uh, I talked to the ex-wife for a little bit and that was pleasant uh nothing oh I found out my cat's not deaf I spent all last week thinking that my cat had a hearing problem I would snap my fingers on one side of its ear and it would turn its head to look at it then I'd snap my fingers on the other side of its ear and it wouldn't respond uh, the other ear and it wouldn't respond, and then eventually it would turn its head over and notice that my hand was there and kind of seem surprised. I uh, thought, oh, that's it. He's got a hearing problem. I'll walk right up to him and he won't even notice till the last second. And uh, my house is real creaky. So I think I've already said all this before. The point is, is that earlier yesterday, I was cleaning up the place and saw him just sitting on the floor like an idiot. And so I said his name out loud. Sixer, I said, because he has six toes on his front paws. Real weird. He's got a... If you were to extend your hand and the space between your thumb and your first finger, that long space, imagine a smaller little thumb sticking right in the middle. That's the way he is with his extra toe. So it spreads his thumb out further like a chimp. And he'll grip your hand if you touch the the big pad in the middle. He'll grip it like a senator. And uh, so I call him Sixer. And so he was just sitting there like a, like a moron. And I 
shouted his name a few times. He didn't look. Disheartened, I tried clapping, but that didn't do anything. But then I gave a high-pitched whistle. Boy, did he look right at me with a what-the-hell's-wrong-with-you expression on his face. I thought, eh, maybe he can only hear high-pitched sounds. But then today, as I woke up in the morning from my other cat, Tavy, shouting at me because she wants treats. They're both really, really old. One is 18 and the other one's 20. Uh, they'll shout. They'll shout real, real loud because they, that's the only thing they got going on in their life is treats. Uh, she shouted at me and I got up angry as always and stumbled around looking for Sixer because he always sleeps in some other part of the house so I can get both of them together and I have to give them their thyroid medication. This is all really boring. But my point was, I got up in my daughter's room where Sixer was sleeping like an angel on her bed. The same bed where he had clearly thrown up on the comforter, so that's uh, a fun little thing I gotta clean up at some point. And uh, next to the throw up lay my perfect little six. So I stood in the doorway, angry, because I've been woken up by another just screaming cat. If you ever heard the yell, it gets to you deep inside. It makes all your muscles tense. And uh, so I was upset. And I went upstairs and I said, Sixer, real loud. And boy, did he perk up and look right at me. So I realized, oh, he's not deaf. All this time that I thought he couldn't hear, it was because he was just ignoring me. A little turd. So that's a good thing that my real old cat is uh, able to still have the gift of hearing. So that's nice. I've been uh, rearranging busts around my house, getting them positioned just just right. Also, I've been getting a lot of junk mail, uh, spam mail, but it's physical mail uh, in my mailbox. One was saying that I have 14 days to try to uh, take part in some sort of thing that would ensure that if I died, my children could still have my home and not pay the mortgage on it. Uh, and for all of those 14 days, it continued to send me letter after letter every day. Oh, the music stopped. And it's back on. Nice. Uh, and that didn't concern me. I knew that was junk. But uh, I got one that said that I could serve five years in prison if I don't register my home with the county. And also said that it's not associated or affiliated with the county. So I reached out to my realtor saying, this seems like spam, but is it? And my realtor said, don't worry, it's fake. You already paid for that. And she followed that up with a photo of her husband by a Christmas tree holding a Hello Kitty telephone. Also, there may or may not be inappropriate content for kids or really sensitive adults. It's public domain books for the most part that I'm reading, so um, I think it's probably pretty safe and you should probably shouldn't worry about it. But I don't read any of this stuff before I start doing the podcast, so I'm kind of learning about the book as you do. And uh, if anything really cool happens that's sexual in nature or involves a lot of swearing, I'm going to be pretty impressed, just like you. And maybe your kid in the back seat. Have you ever listened to a LibriVox recording and thought to yourself, who are these people? 
Who's the guy with the labored breath and the cats yelling in the background that takes the time to read Anne of Green Gables to me? Uh, I found myself more focused on the individual reading the book than the actual story itself. Sitting there studying, listening for little sounds. The cars outside the window. The creaks and groans from the floor above the head of a neighbor who lives upstairs in the apartment. That is what I would like to recreate here for you with Nuzzle House Audio. I am Glenn Nuzzles. What did we learn from the last chapter or episode? We learned that you don't need to literally have Ernest give you lessons on sociology and uh, philosophy and whatever else. Uh, the narrator can just start doing it on his, his own. Uh, at one point, Jack London decided, ah, I'm sick of doing the dance. I don't want to set up a scenario where Ernest gives a speech to school all you idiots on the way the world really works. See, Jack London just decided, I'm just diving in. Hi, my name is Jack London. Did you know about economics and how it's unfair? Uh, so that's basically what happened in the last chapter. <clears throat> but he did stop himself. Or maybe he had a friend read it and say, You, Jack, have just got to cut this out. You're, uh, you're preaching again, Jack. You're getting real, real preachy. So he did jump into a story of war between the oligarchy and, uh, and the, the, the socialists, the working class, not just in America, but in Germany as well, because war began to break out in the U.S. and Germany, all thanks to the surplus issue, which I guess if I wanted to take the time to find out, does that really how economics works? I mean, it's possible, or maybe it worked that way at one point in the past. But as far as today, do you really have a surplus? And then you're just constantly throwing it out at other countries. Uh, how does that work with a recession where everyone needs the money? I don't know. I don't pretend to know anything about it. But because of this surplus, a war between the United States and Germany broke out. Uh, and we learned that Warlord can be used for the reigning power of another country uh so there's that and uh there is a an uprising by the working class organized by the socialists both in germany and the united states they sent wires to each other across the atlantic uh to plan it which was don't go to work or little kids were also in on this and they just didn't go to school and boy those teachers were mad when they had to go home with nothing to do uh, buses weren't going anywhere. Shops were closed. And this was between the two continents. Did it stop the war? No. The oligarchy in the United States beat out the Russians. The Russians, Germans. <laughs> and in the end, uh, they reaped the rewards. So, for the millionth time, in this book, the socialists just kind of made everything worse. Which I think is really weird. I was, re I was thinking, reflecting, I was going to say I was reflecting on that earlier, but that, which makes it sound like I'm just sitting uh, with a scotch in a 
on a mahogany chair in dim lighting with classical music playing and just reflecting on what I'm reading. That's not what was happening. I was most likely on the toilet. But I was thinking, why is an author trying to make the socialist movement seem appealing? Why would you inadvertently keep making your protagonist and the organization he claims to be a part of keep making them screw up all the time? They don't seem to really outdo the oligarchs and and, uh, business. They just kind of keep making things worse. I think the, the, the bishop would be a great example of a person who was trying to work within the means of the world he lives in to help people uh, instead of trying to violently change that environment. He was just trying to help people. And uh, Ernest showed him the horrors of the world and, and kept criticizing him when he was trying to do well after that. And then in the end, he's insane and in a home, and uh, and all that stuff. So it's like the author doesn't seem to... Did anyone ever edit this book? Did he have an editor? Or did he just get it published? And they said, eh, he'll write a book about wolves someday. We'll just publish it. Let's get his foot in the door. So that was chapter 13, The General Strike. Now on to the next chapter. Chapter XIV. The beginning of the end. As early as January 1913, Ernest saw the true trend of affairs, but he could not get his brother leaders to see the vision of the iron heel that had arisen in his brain. They were too confident. Events were rushing too rapidly to culmination. A crisis had come in world affairs. The American oligarchy was practically in possession of the world market, and scores of countries were flung out of that market with unconsumable and unsaleable surpluses on their hands. For such countries, nothing remained but reorganization. They could not continue their method of producing surpluses. The capitalistic system, so far as they were concerned, had hopelessly broken down. The reorganization of these countries took the form of revolution. It was a time of confusion and violence. Everywhere, institutions and governments were crashing. Everywhere, sorry, they put the word every dash, then you flip the page and it says where. With the exception of two or three countries, the erstwhile capitalist masters fought bitterly for their possessions. But the governments were taken away from them by the militant proletariat. At last was being realized Karl Marx's classic, quote, The knell of private capitalist property sounds. The expropriators are expropriated. And as fast as capitalistic governments crashed, cooperative commonwealths rose in their place. Why does the United States lag behind? Get busy, you American revolutionists! Exclamation point. These are all quotes, so I guess it's just other people saying this. What's the matter with America? Were the messages sent to us by our successful comrades in other lands. But we could not keep up. The oligarchy stood in the way. Its bulk, like that of some huge monster, blocked our path. Wait till we take office in the spring, we answered. Then you'll see... Behind this lay our secret. 
We had won over the Grangers, and in the spring a dozen states would pass into their hands by virtue of the elections of the preceding fall. At once uh, we could be instructed a dozen cooperative Commonwealth states. After that, the rest would be easy. But what if the Grangers fail to get possession, Ernest demanded. Oh, that's Ernest. And his comrades called him a calamity howler. But this failure to get possession was not the chief danger that Ernest had in mind. What he foresaw was the defection of the great labor unions and the rise of the castes. Ghent has taught the oligarchs how to do it, Ernest said. I'll wager they've made a textbook out of his benevolent feudalism. Never shall I forget the night when, after a hot discussion with half a dozen labor leaders, Ernest turned to me and said quietly, That settles it. The Iron Heel is won. The end is in sight. This little conference in our home was unofficial, but Ernest, like the rest of his comrades, was working for assurances from the labor leaders that they would call out their men in the next general strike. O'Connor, the president of the Association of Machinists, had been foremost of the six leaders present in refusing to give such assurance. You have seen that you were beaten soundly at your old tactics of strike and boycott, Ernest urged. O'Connor and the others nodded their heads. And you saw what a general strike would do, Ernest went on. We stopped the war with Germany. Never was there so fine a display of solidarity and the power of labor. Labor can and will rule the world. If you continue to stand with us, we'll put an end to the reign of capitalism. It's your only hope. And what is more, you know it. There is no other way out. No matter what you do under your old tactics, you are doomed to defeat. If for no other reason, because the masters control the courts. And you run ahead too fast, O'Connor answered. You don't know all the ways out. There's another way out. We know what we're about. We're sick of strikes. They've got us beaten that way to a frazzle. But I don't think we'll ever need to call our men out again. <laughs> what is your way out? Ernest demanded bluntly. O'Connor laughed and shook his head. <laughs> I can tell you this much. We've not been asleep, and we're not dreaming now. There's nothing to be afraid of or ashamed of, I hope, Ernest challenged. I guess we know our business best, was the retort. It's a dark business, from the way you hide it, Ernest said with growing anger. We paid for our experience in sweat and blood, and we've earned all that's coming to us, was the reply. Charity begins at home. If you're afraid to tell me your way out, I'll tell it to you, Ernest. Blood was up. You're going in for grab sharing. Uh, you've made terms with the enemy. That's what you've done. You've sold out the cause of your labor, of all labor. You are leaving the battlefield like cowards. I'm not saying anything, O'Connor answered suddenly. Only, I guess we know what's best for us a little bit better than you do. And you don't care a cent for what is best for the rest of labor. You kick it into the ditch. I'm not saying anything, O'Connor replied, except that I am president of the Machinist Association, and it is my business to consider the interests of the men I represent. That is all. 
I love that this is a discussion going on between Ernest, who's just kind of like lazy guy, eating off other people's food and at their homes and stuff, also running for senator, and then um, this guy who's the president of the Machinist Association, and he they have such clout and they're having such a serious conversation. Uh, and then, when the labor leaders had left Ernest with the calmness of defeat, outlined to me the course of events to come. The socialists used to foretell with joy, he said, the coming of the day when organized labor defeated on the industrial field would come over on the political field. Well, the Iron Heels defeated the labor unions on the industrial field and driven them over to the political field, and instead of this being joyful for us, it will be a source source of grief. The Iron Heel learned its lesson. We showed it our power in the general strike. It has taken steps to prevent another general strike. But how, I asked, simply by subsidizing the great unions. They won't join in the next general strike, therefore it won't be a general strike. But the Iron Heel can't maintain so costly a program forever, I objected. Oh, it hasn't subsidized all of the unions. That's not necessary. Here is what's going to happen. The wages are going to be advanced and hours shortened in the railroad unions and the iron steel work unions and the engineer, the machinist unions. In these unions, more favorable conditions will continue to prevail. Membership in these unions will become less like seats in paradise. I didn't know that a membership in a union was ever a seat in paradise. Still, I don't see, I objected. What is to come of the other unions? There are far more unions outside of this combination than in yet. The other unions will be ground out of existence, all of them. For don't you see the railway men, machinists and engineers, iron and steel workers do all of the... Virtually essential work in our machine civilization. Assured of the faithfulness, the Iron Heel can snap its fingers at all the rest of labor. Iron, steel, coal, and machinery and transportation constitute the backbone of the whole industrial fabric. (sighs) The coal, I queried. There are nearly a million coal miners. They are practically unskilled labor. They will not count. Their wages will go down, and their hours will increase, and they will be slaves like the rest of us, and they will become about the most bestial of all of us. They will be compelled to work, just as the farmers are compelled to work now for the masters who rob them of their land. And the same with all of the other unions outside the combination. Watch them wobble and go to pieces, and their members become slaves, driven to toil by empty stomachs and the law of the land. Do you know what will happen to Farley and his strike breakers? I'll tell you. Strike breaking is an occupation will cease. I thought that was supposed to be a... But no, it's earnest. There won't be any more strikes. That's why he's doing the high pitch voice. In place of strikes will be slave result, revolts. Farley and his gang will be promoted to slave driving. Oh, it won't be called that. It'll be called enforcing the law of the land that compels the laborers to work. It simply prolongs the fight. This treachery of the big unions. Heaven only knows now where and when the revolution will triumph. And speaking of triumph, let's just take a moment to talk about some of the hot new books out there right now. 
For example, a Penguin Random House, a, a young adult novel called The Smoke of Thieves. Unforgivable betrayals, devious motives, and forbidden love collide in the first installment of internationally best-selling author Sally Green's epic new fantasy series perfect for Game of Thrones fans. In a land tinged with magic and a bustling trade of illicit supernatural substance, destiny will intertwine the fates of five players. Let's list them off for a minute. A visionary princess determined to forge her own path. All right. An idealistic soldier whose heart is at odds with his duty. Oh, yes, that is delicious. A streetwise hunter tracking the most dangerous prey. Okay, all right. A charming thief with a powerful hidden identity. Okay, little Han Solo. A loyal servant on a quest to avenge his kingdom. Their lives intersect with a stolen bottle of demon smoke. As war approaches, they must navigate a tangled web of political intrigue, shifting alliances, and forbidden love in order to uncover the dangerous truth about the strangely powerful smoke that intertwines their fates. So be sure to pick up The Smoke of Thieves by Sally Green internationally best-selling author of Half Bad. (laughs) And on to the story. But with such a powerful combination as the oligarchy and the big unions, is there any reason to believe that the revolution will ever triumph, I queried? May not the combination endure forever? He shook his head. One of our generalizations is that every system founded upon class and caste contains within itself the germs of its own decay. This guy is just such a downer at all times. He doesn't really help. He just sort of stands back and criticizes. When a system is founded upon class, how can caste be prevented? The iron heel will not be able to prevent it. And in the end, caste will destroy the Iron Heel. The oligarchs have already developed caste among themselves, but wait until the favored unions developed caste. The Iron Heel will use all of its power to prevent it, but it will fail. In the favored unions are the flower of the American working men. They are strong, efficient men. They have become members of those unions through competition for place. Every fit working man in the United States will be possessed by the ambition to become a member of the favored unions. The oligarchy will encourage such ambition and the consequent competition. Thus will the strong men who might else be revolutionists be won away and their strength used to bolster oligarchy. I kind of have a hard time believing any organization can be so thorough and meticulous and perfect. Uh, the way he describes the oligarchy using systems that exist against it, uh, you know, for its own good. and so It's just, eh, human beings are too lazy and dumb for the most part. So it's, it just kind of seems very conspiratory or conspiracy theorist. But, you know, this was written a long time ago before we became so much wiser that we can see through 
Pizzagate scandals. On the other hand, the labor castes, the members of the favored unions, will strive to make their organizations into close corporations, and they will succeed. Membership in the labor castes will become hereditary. Sons will succeed, fathers, and there will be no inflow of new strength from that eternal reservoir of strength. The common people... This will mean deterioration of the labor caste, and in the end, they will become weaker and weaker. At the same time, as an institution, they will become temporarily all-powerful. They will be like the guards of the palace in old Rome. And there will be the palace revolutions whereby the labor castes will seize the reins of power. And there will be counter-palace revolutions of the oligarchs, and sometimes the one and sometimes the other will be in power, and though it will be inevitable, caste weakening will go on, and so in the end, the common people will come into their own. This foreshadowing of a slow social evolution was made when Ernest was first depressed by the defection of the great unions. I never agreed with him in it, and I disagree now. Ooh, that's bold. She's actually defining herself as her own person. And as I write these lines more heartily than ever, for even now, though Ernest is gone, we are on the verge of the revolt that will sweep all oligarchies away. And yet, I have here given Ernest's prophecy, because it was his prophecy. In spite of his belief in it, he worked like a giant against it. Has he? Because he doesn't seem to really do anything. He just kind of criticizes. And he, more than any man, has made possible the revolt that even now waits the signal to burst forth. But if the oligarchy persists, I asked him that evening, what will become of the great surpluses that will fall to its share every year? The surpluses will have to be expended somehow, he answered, and and trusts the oligarchs to find a way. Magnificent roads will be built. There will be great achievements in science and especially in art. When the oligarchs have completely mastered the people, they will have time to spare for other things. Again, a giant conspiracy theory. They will become worshippers of beauty. They will become art lovers and under their direction and... Generosity rewarded will toil the artists. The result will be great art. For no longer, as up to yesterday, will the artist pander to the bourgeois taste of the middle class. It'll be great art, I tell you. The wonder cities will arise that will make tawdry and cheap the cities of old time. And in these cities will the oligarchs dwell and worship beauty. Thus... Will the surplus be constantly expanded while labor does the work? The building of these great works and cities will give a starvation ration to millions of common laborers. For the enormous bulk of the surplus will compel an equally enormous expenditure, and the oligarchs will build for a thousand years, a for ten thousand years. They will build as Egyptians, and the Babylonians never dreamed of building. Yeah, we got the Mall of America in Minneapolis, so that's a really good example. And when the oligarchs have passed away, their great roads and their wonder cities, wonder cities, (laughs) will remain for the brotherhood of labor to tread upon and dwell within. 
<clears throat> these things the oligarchs will do because they cannot help doing them. These great works will be the form their expenditure of the surplus will take. And in the same way that the ruling classes of Egypt and of long ago expended the surpluses, they robbed from the people by the building of temples and pyramids. Under the oligarchs will flourish not a priest class, but an artist class. And in place of the merchant class of bourgeoisie will be the labor castes, and beneath will be the abyss, wherein will fester and starve and rot and never review, renew itself. The common people, the great bulk of the population. And in the end, who knows in what day the common people will Rise up out of the abyss. The labor castes and the oligarchy will crumble away, and then at last, after the travail of the centuries, will it be the day of the common man. And it will be the day of the common man. I have thought to see that day, but now I know I shall never see it. He paused and looked at me and added, Social evolution is exasperatingly slow, isn't it, sweetheart? Like, oh, that's so tender. You can tell they're in love. My arms were about him, and his head was on my breast. Sing me to sleep, he murmured whimsically. <laughs> I've had a visioning, and I wish to forget. Man, if I ever uh, get in a relationship again, I am totally using that line. Sing me to sleep. I have had a visioning and I wish to forget. And that's the end of the chapter. Well, what do we learn here today? We learn that just because you have a few chapters of actual story doesn't mean you can't slide right back into more preaching. And it's earnest this time. Jack London kind of slipped up in chapter 13 by just flat out him telling you about economics but he tried to save himself towards the end and in this chapter he couldn't help himself he just slid right back into using Ernest to give some big old speeches but at least Avis got to speak and Avis actually disagreed with him uh, not to his face only after his death does she declare that she disagrees with him but still respects the fact that he prophesied and uh, made sure we all got to hear about it. Uh, he talked to the president of the Machinist Union, Union? And scolds them that they're all morons. Uh, we learn that being in a union isn't all wine and roses anymore. That comfortable seat that they call union membership. Uh, the oligarchs have forced socialists to fight in the political arena because they're perfectly... Uh, planning downfalls left and right that you just can't keep up with. Uh, guys, Wonder Cities is a thing. And I'm going to start referring to every city I ever visit as a Wonder City. Uh, the oligarchs will start using their surplus to build beautiful Wonder Cities and promote art, which will eventually be their downfall. It, it's just social evolution. Uh, hundreds of years from now, the social revolution might not ever happen in poor Ernest's lifetime. Uh, framing it as if he is the Jesus 
They've referred to him as Jesus throughout this book multiple times, and now he's basically saying, I must go, but someday in the future I will return. Uh, nah, he never really said that, but it's just kind of framing it as like the rapture that he'll never get to see. And, of course, my favorite line that I will use on my children, and if anybody was dumb enough to date me, sing me to sleep. I have had a visioning, and I wish to forget. So with that, we have read chapter 14 of The Iron Hill, The Beginning of the End. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have not. And I hope that chapter 15, The Last Days, is where more story happens and we don't get many more interjections of uh, Ernest being crabby, being right all the time. And I hope you come back to go through this hell with me. I'm already excited for whatever next book I'm going to read, but I have to finish this first. And I've got a good, I'm guessing, ten chapters left. As always, I am obediently yours, Glenn Nuzzles. (laughs) 